And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Dr. Peter Hammond. He's uh, founder and director of Frontline Fellowship. Uh, Peter, it's an honor to have you on with us today. Thank you, Dan. Great to be with you. You know, Peter, I try to keep up with the news, and it's a tough task. Many times we can't even get accurate news, but uh, one of the news items that came across our desk here in the past couple of weeks has been the concerns of farmers in South Africa. And uh, apparently there's um, some persecution going on, and I thought, well, maybe Peter would know something about this. So I I think we'll just jump right into it and uh, see where it goes. How's that? Thank you. I'm really glad you're willing to tackle the subject. Now, uh, Peter, South Africa, maybe you could give us just a really short rundown of the history of South Africa and what has gone on there in the past and, and that sort of thing. Yes, well, South Africa was discovered uh, by Portuguese explorer Bartholomew Diaz, in fact, back about the same time as America was being discovered by Columbus. So in 1488, South Africa was discovered by Bartholomew Diaz, but it was only really settled in the 1600s. From 1652, the Dutch particularly started to settle the southernmost part of of the Cape, roughly about the same time as the English and Dutch were moving into uh, America's um, uh, eastern seaboard. Right. And... uh, so we, we've got a few similarities in that sense. We had a similar kind of mix. There were uh, people come from Holland, uh, from uh, France, religious persecution, France seeking religious freedom. We had English settlers, German, uh, Scottish, and so on. So a very much a similar, similar to your early days, and of course covered wagons, pioneers moving out into the hinterland. And uh, uh, we had our wars, uh, such as, like you had your wars between the states, we had our Anglo-Boer wars because the British and the the Dutch settlers were uh, at loggerheads on a number of occasions, especially because the gold and the diamonds that sadly uh, was found <laughs> under yeah. the farms was, and, and that, that led to horrific uh, suffering. So the South African people have gone through uh, the wars in, 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 the, in the past, but we've got a beautiful country. There's 11 different nations in South Africa, 11 different official languages in the country. And of course, I come from the European descent settlers who've been in the country for 360 odd years. There's a lot of the people in the country, in fact, would surprise you to know that vast majority of people in South Africa were not born here. I'm one of the minority of people born here um, because uh, it's interesting to people overseas, when, whenever I'm, I travel to different parts of the world doing missionary work like in Australia, there are people who express surprise, but how can you be from Africa? You're white. And, uh, well, we we had uh, white people from Africa going back to Augustine and to Italian early church history in North Africa. Mm-hmm. We've got some south as well, and the God's put us here for missionary purposes, and we, I do missionary work throughout Africa. But I was born in Africa, and I'm, I'm an African. So uh, we are a minority in the country now, and we've gone through some pretty violent uh, upheavals in recent years because during the Cold War, as Europe was pulling out of Africa— the Soviet Union and Red China were backing a lot of violent revolutionary groups such as the ANC and ZANU and ZAPU and FALIMO and MPLA. And there, there were uh, tremendous uh, terrorist wars uh, which were very violent during the 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, into the 90s. And uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed, we suddenly had the first time in my lifetime peace um, because the moment the Soviet Union collapsed, there was no more funding for 
uh, the terrorist movements, and mm-hmm. they had to sit down around the table and make peace. And suddenly, you had your first free elections and communist Angola and Mozambique and Zambia, and, uh, and South Africa was also able to organize its first uh, multiracial elections on the same voters' roll, because before that, there'd been um, separate voters' rolls for the different nations uh, in the country. And uh, uh, when uh, the Soviet Union collapsed, it gave a whole new opportunity for peace and negotiations and freedom. And the wars came to an end in the South, and uh, we found that uh, a great relief. And that's when our mission was able to concentrate on missionary work further north in Nigeria and the Congo and Rwanda and Sudan and Egypt and uh, uh, because the wars in Southern Africa had come to an end. Now, of course, we've got people who would like to have a second revolution or a second phase of the revolution in the country. And that's what's causing some uh, real problems as the peace treaties and negotiations and the constitutional state that was uh, organized in 1994 now is in jeopardy. Okay, yeah, that's helpful. Um, So, yeah, I was reading about this a little bit in South Africa, and it sounds like things are heating up. I'm just looking at one of the, just randomly almost, I'm looking at the independent right now. They're describing a man here who lives in a place I can't pronounce, Bloemfontein, maybe? Yeah, and uh, it's the judicial capital of South Africa. His younger brother, 21, was shot dead by four assailants on a farm, and uh, he describes how that every night when he goes to sleep, he can see his brother's brown eyes and picture his dead body. And um, and there's uh, reports of farmers being tortured for hours by home invaders. Um, this man, whose name is Mr. Stoles, said it was a relief for me and my family that my brother was shot and that he died quickly. Um, and so they're, they're describing torture, it's slaughter, it's brutal. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, what is going on with these farmers? And so I did a little more reading, and uh, I guess there was a recent parliament vote, and uh, maybe you can describe what's going on. I don't want to get the, the story wrong. Right. So, of course, uh, South Africa has been a country which has had a racial divide. Now, over the centuries, we've seen revolutionaries will use any kind of pretext to start a revolution. You know, the French Revolution was the the upper class versus the working class. And uh, in the Soviet Union or Russia, they, they made their revolution on the base of the rich versus the poor. And... Uh, they, they will try almost anything. In America in 1960s, the KGB was uh, doing everything they could to incite a race war between black and white in America. They've tried uh, in Britain to, uh, in the early part of the 20th century, uh, the Communist Party was using particularly feminism uh, against the rest. And so they, it's, they'll try and turn anyone against anyone, whether it's uh, black against white, whether it's rich against poor, whether it's employers against employees, whether it's women against men, uh, whatever the issue now, in South Africa, the Communist Party decided to use race. And, well, South Africa was settled from the south by white settlers from Europe and was settled from the north by black settlers who came from uh, Central and Northern Africa. And so we're all settlers here. We came to the country roughly at the same time. And it took about 150 years before blacks and whites actually even met because uh, there were no blacks in the Cape province, the whole area where we live, uh, for the first 150 years. They met them coming down south as our uh, pioneers, our foot trekkers, we call them, were moving north. So 
Okay, so we've got different people of different backgrounds and races uh, in, in the country. And so, funnily enough, over the years, there was pretty good race relations. But this changed in the 1960s and 70s as communist revolutionaries decided to engender race hatred. Now, because most of the whites in South Africa were from a Christian background, Dutch Reformed churches mostly, uh, but you also had everything from the Baptist, the Church of England, so on from the English side, and the Presbyterian from Scotland. So because of the Christian ethos of the of the whites, there was a very good race relations over the years. There was a lot of kindness and charity and missionary work and generosity. And in fact, the life expectancy of black people in South Africa doubled and then trebled as the whites came into the same areas and uh, through medical work and agricultural and plumbing and so on. Uh, massively increased everyone's life expectancy, so much so that uh, the number of black people in South Africa just in the last century has increased something like 2,000 and something percent. So, <laughs> uh, hardly genocide, it's the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas we'd see that um, the Aborigines in Australia didn't do too well, uh, and there's much less Aborigines today than there were back when Australians arrived 200 years ago. Not so in South Africa. Uh, there's been a colossal increase in number of blacks in South Africa to the extent that even during apartheid, which was racial discrimination and segregation on the uh, principles of good fences make good neighbors, the separate but equal philosophy, which has, of course, been much criticized. But it was in many ways organized by people with probably good intentions, even if it didn't always work well. The idea was that we must have separate areas, separate um, everything from uh, the schools and uh, uh, the shops and everything else. And basically the idea was, well, they've got a different way of doing things. So let, let the causes run Transkei, let the Zulus run Zuland, uh, and so on. And so basically the, the whole principle of apartheid was no one race or group should dominate another. Each one should be independent, separate, and uh, self-governing and so on. Now, this, of course, was uh, exploited, as you would expect anything would be exploited by the revolutionaries, because there was no apartheid in Rhodesia, but the communist revolutionaries still worked out a way to create um, violence there and terrorism, even though it was a country without any racial discrimination. The, the country had a qualified franchise. You, you got the vote in Rhodesia from uh, either educational qualification or property ownership. Uh, in the Portuguese controlled Mozambique and Angola, uh, it, they had assimilation and again there wasn't a racial policy, it was in terms of if people are civilized and speak Portuguese they get the vote. Uh, so uh, it didn't matter what, what the system was, in every part of Africa there was revolution that the communists engendered and it wasn't just because of apartheid, because every country had a revolution and uh, the, the communists found different pretexts in each place. So in South Africa as time went on, and as the Soviet Union collapsed, and as we won our wars on the border, and we defeated the Soviet and Cuban forces there, and it was major, we're talking about colossal battles, the biggest tank battles, even bigger than the tank battles that my father took part in North Africa and Libya during the Second World War, Battle of El Alamein. We, we had bigger battles than that in Angola against the Soviet forces and, and, the, and the Cubans. So at the end, after winning the war, uh, South African whites determined to have a negotiation process by which we could agree to live together in one country under a whole group of laws. You know, basically the kind of things you've got in your Bill of Rights. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of association, private ownership of property. And it's these things that are now under threat because 
while the, the different revolutionaries, including Nelson Mandela's African National Congress, agreed to the negotiation process, accepted these solemn agreements on the basis of which we laid down our arms 24 years ago, and we agreed to a peaceful coexistence uh, under this constitutional settlement with a, a Bill of Rights that guaranteed these freedoms. And it was meant to be a colorblind society where you don't have race politics. But almost immediately, the ANC under Mandela started to bring in all kinds of affirmative action, black economic empowerment, racial quotas, even for sports teams. And it was just relentless so that you couldn't get a job if you were male and pale, you know, literally, let's say two male, two pale. And uh, we've now got huge squatter camps of shanty towns of, of hundreds of thousands of white people who are poverty stricken because they can't get employment and they, they're destitute. And uh, it's, it's been a cover for a lot of corruption and violence. Well, you would have thought that's bad enough. But over the years, now we've had the African National Congress of Nelson Mandela, which is controlled by the Southern Communist Party in power now for uh, nearly 24 years. This may be 24 years. And so they have had to explain why everything they've promised has failed. Because every year the ANC has been in power, there's been a million more unemployed people added to the unemployed masses. So back in 1994, when Nelson Mandela became president, we had something like 2 million unemployed. Uh, today, we've got 30 million unemployed. That's something like more than half of the total population is unemployed. Oh, my. Uh, so, disaster. Uh, the rand back, well, when I was growing up, the rand was stronger than the US dollar and stronger than the British pound. Uh, when Mandela became president in 1994, when we had this agreement, the rand was two rand to the dollar. Okay, we'd lost some position because we'd had a war, terrorism, riots, sanctions. Fair enough. Okay, so the rand was down to two rand to the dollar. But since then, with no war, with massive foreign aid, we, we now find the rands down to 14 rand to the dollar. So we've lost our the value of our money dramatically. And it's not like your money hasn't gone down too during the same time period. Sure. So the, the currency is down. And the government, instead of saying, look, the socialist policies we're trying obviously don't work. And race quotas obviously aren't a good idea. And chasing away employers and chasing away entrepreneurs and investors is not a good idea. Instead of admitting that they have failed, because they've been elected five times on racial uh, kind of politics, uh, which and we meant to have a, a race-free society without any racial politics. But, you know, I think you notice in America that uh, uh, electing Obama didn't end racial politics. It kind of made it worse. Right. And uh, so we here as well. So what we've got is a socialist, secular, humanist government that is controlled by the Communist Party, who don't dare go to elections because no one's going to vote for the Communist Party, but they control the ANC that pretends to be a nationalist party, but in effect is a socialist party controlled by communists at the top. And all of our leaders of the country in the last 24 years have been Communist Party members who have been running on an ANC nationalist ticket. So it's, it's a bit of bait and switch. So what we've now got is we've got a government that's trying to use the white people as the scapegoat. Even though they have been in power for almost 24 years, everything wrong in the country is the fault of the white minority. Now, well, when I was born, we were 30-something percent of the population. Uh, now, uh, we are not even 8% of the population. We've become a minority in our own country. And we are legislated against it's over 100 racial laws which discriminate against white people in the country. 
Now, bear in mind, I'm a missionary and I've spent most of my life helping black people and serving black churches throughout all of Africa, including in the most war-torn areas. And I've risked my life serving black Christians throughout the whole of Africa. So right. I hope nobody's going to call me a racist for just trying to point out what a racist government we've got in the ANC. Because I don't have a racial axe to grind. Uh, I'm committed to all of Africa. And my vision is see Africa one for Christ. Amen. And I see things in the terms of, of lost and saved and the Church of Christ and people who, who are the mission fielder. I'm not looking at this whole thing from a racial perspective, but our government is forcing this racist straitjacket on us. So uh, you must understand I'm, I'm opposing the racism, even I've got to talk about it, because unfortunately that's the agenda. So what they have been campaigning on for the last 24 years, believe it or not, is we've got leaders, including the previous president of a country, singing regularly, kill the Boer, kill the farmer. Now, Boer is the Afrikaans word for a farmer. Uh, our Dutch farmer. Right. I had read about this, in fact. Yes. Uh, there's a man uh, by the name of uh, Julius Malema, whatever. He's very radical. Julius Malema is an ANC uh, youth leader. He was in charge of the youth league of the ANC, and then he went off to start his own party. Uh, we personally don't believe that he's in opposition to the ANC. We think this is part of a deception operation of the African National Congress government that they've They've allowed their most radical 6% of their members to go into this EFF, which is blatant mm-hmm. communist. They wear red T-shirts, they have hammers and sickles, uh, the red stars, red berets, and they are chanting the kill the boer, kill the farmer, cut the throat of the white man, and all these sort of things over and over. They are, they've been condemned by our courts. The courts have called them racist and guilty of hate speech and that this isn't allowed, and they carry on, and the government never prosecutes any of them, even though our constitutional court, the highest court in the land, has determined that what they're doing is illegal and it's hate speech right. uh, and it's incitement to violence. They're not just saying, we don't like you, uh, they're saying, we should kill you. That's right. It's not just that they're singing these songs and having these posters saying, kill all whites, and t-shirts saying, kill all whites, which we see, uh, but literally, uh, they are doing it because we have had, um, for me to say that thousands of farmers have been killed doesn't even come close to explaining the situation. As you mentioned earlier, they're being tortured to death. And yes. when we say torture, we're talking about things that, that most of you would never have even imagined, even if you've been watching uh, these kind of Stephen King horror slasher uh, gr- grotesque films. Uh, in fact, not even those people would have imagined the kind of disgusting, savage, brutal tortures perpetrated on grandparents and great-grandparents and farmers who should be pensioners, uh, generally very old people. And, uh, you know, people in the 60s, 70s, 80s, tortured to death. And I don't want to get into gruesome terms, but we're talking about uh, being tortured, mutilated, uh, body parts cut off, uh, being dragged behind vehicles, being burned with hot irons, having boiling water poured down their throats, uh, having plastic bags shoved into their throats so that they suffocate. Yes. You know, just gruesome, disgusting, beyond comprehension. What on earth are they doing this for? And uh, yet, uh, this is being encouraged because everything wrong in a country, and there's a lot of things wrong in a country, everything wrong in a country is blamed on the white scapegoat. Mm-hmm. It's a race. So it's a war on whites, not just in affirmative action, black economic empowerment, job reservation, racial quotas for sports teams, which is totally out of hand. 
Uh, but it's uh, directing all the frustration of the young unemployed masses that the reason why you're suffering and the reason why you're poor is not because your government's corrupt and incompetent, it's because of those whites. And, and so what you've done is unleashed racial hatred against a minority in a country which is extremely dangerous. Well, you've, you've really pointed out something here that I wasn't even aware of. I, I was aware that this had a racial component to it. What I had missed was the fact of Marxism and communism playing the chief role here. Um, you know, in, in our experience, I, I, there's something very mild by comparison um, that we went through here in New York State. My great-grandfather uh, got dislodged from his land. His land was taken from him, got paid pennies on the dollar when uh, New York City created a reservoir. And if my great-grandfather hadn't moved, of course, he would become criminal. Uh, New York City had all the money, all the lawyers, these poor local farmers, common laborers, sawmill workers, etc., had zero say in the matter. The city wanted their land, came in, and took it by force. All the churches, schools, shops, railroad stations, sawmills, they were all gone. They were raised, and the residents were paid $15 to dig up the grave of a family member or friend and move the body. And he had to move, and that meant he lost his livelihood, had to recreate his life, basically. And yet, you look at how these people handled that, um, and it wasn't right what New York City did, but they needed the water and blah, blah, blah. But um, they didn't fight back with brutal attacks. Um, and, and I think the difference is you didn't have this communist perspective that causes a great hatred and a division between peoples. Exactly. I mean, what we're dealing with first and foremost is the revolution. Um, if you've seen the film Agenda 2, uh, which Curtis Bowers brought up, he has the phrase there regularly, the issue is never the issue. The issue is the revolution. And, in fact, that's the way I understand. As somebody who spent my life in Africa and working in restricted excess areas, working in war zones, a lot of my time in communist countries, I've come to understand how communists think. And the scripture talks about it. The scripture speaks about, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous. And they promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. And uh, that's in 2 Peter 2.19. They promised them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. You could write that over every single revolution. The revolutionaries from the French Revolution through the Soviet Revolution, all the rest, they are corrupt and they are incompetent and they're actually a bunch of criminals. And yes. in order to cover their crimes, they need to whip up people in the streets uh, against some real or imagined enemy over some grievance, real or imagined or exaggerated. And so in every case, the people who replace whatever the status quo is, whether it's the, the Tsar of Russia or Louis XVI or whatever, it's always worse. The commissars are always worse than the Tsar. And what we are seeing in South Africa is, is they're looting the country. They're stealing everything. And, you know, if somebody wants to pick your pocket, uh, sort of like Oliver Twist <laughs> type of thing in, in uh, streets of London, if someone wants to pick your pocket, they need to distract you. And if somebody needs to loot a country, or if a party wants to loot a country, they need a lot of distraction. And so what we've been seeing in South Africa is we've seen colossal tsunami of disinformation to distract the people from the disastrous failure of a government and the catastrophic corruption of the ANC government. They are inventing and promoting 
every day lies, distortions, disinformation, fabrications, misleading statistics, campaigns of guilt manipulation, and have created this massive smokescreen to cover their rampant corruption and incompetence. Yeah. And are looting this country blind. And that's why the last president just got ousted, because people were just outraged over his crimes. He had 750 cases of fraud uh, that the police were investigating, and he just fired the attorney general and replaced him with one who scrapped the charges. And, I mean, he's <laughs> sending out huge amounts of the country to foreigners, uh, like the Guptas, which is an Indian uh, family, which somehow own vast amounts of our country, because in South Africa, they're speaking about state capture. We've been run by a criminal mafia that literally is selling out everything. And now the people on the streets who frustrate saying, you know, what happened to the land and jobs and peace and progress and everything we've been promised? And so uh, this government, which has totally wrecked and looted the country on, on so many levels that we have regular power failures, regular, uh, we are, we're running out of water in Cape Town. Oh, my. The amount, you know, major cities where we, we walk around with buckets of water every day in a major city because uh, our government's absolutely looted the treasury and have not been maintaining the infrastructures, they've not been repairing and building and expanding uh, dams, for example, as is needed. And so as the country falls apart, the government just keeps saying, it's their fault, it's their fault. Yes. And so, the, the, and unfortunately, the average person on the street, if they watch the government-controlled media, because, you know, you have independent TV, we have state-controlled uh, TV. Ah, yes. And our government controls the mass media, the radio and everything. Now, Peter, uh, we're out of time here. Um, could you summarize in 30 seconds the hope for something like this? What's the solution? My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. This is an information war. First and foremost, we've got to get the facts out. So the truth sets us free. And so uh, we need resources to set the record straight. I've written the book Sketches from South African History for people to understand our history. And Biblical Principles for Africa for Hope for the Future, Security and Survival on how we can survive in this very violent, volatile, dangerous time. So if people visit our website, frontlinemissionsa.org, frontlinemissionsa.org, you can see some articles and some links and resources. But uh, speak up for us. Uh, don't uh, let the government get away with this. I think we've got to pray. We've got to publish. We need to prepare. And we need to protest. We need to put pressure on those who are causing uh, this highly irresponsible um movement. Yes, yeah, so we, we need to continue this discussion. There's much more we haven't covered here today. We've been talking with missionary Dr. Peter Hammond. He heads up Frontline Fellowship, and we'll have on our website, uh, on our podcast, the URL so you can check it out. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a great pleasure. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for your praise and your concern. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer. <laughs> 